Sir Ellen Payne, the King's Justice, the Royal Executioner. Round two. Well, We've tried this once before. Let's try this again. <laughs> we can each copy what the other person has said. Yeah, there we go. I mean, we, we have a good basis because we started talking about the, the chapter <laughs> yeah. a few days ago, and now we're... It was a good dry run, and now we're doing it for real. Dress rehearsal, now we're back at it again. There you go. Wanted to welcome everybody back to Game of Owns. I am here flying solo today with our friend Jeff. Well, not really flying solo because Jeff is here. but <laughs> No, not flying solo. We're, we're, we're in this together. We are in this together. You can just pretend that your name is Zach, I guess. I, I can't do his cool voice that he does, unfortunately. He's got that like good radio <laughs> voice that I'll just yeah. never, never attain. <laughs> we already sat down earlier this week to try and record this episode. So I feel like we have had a lot of time to think about these chapters. And we've got two really good chapters to dive into. And... The first chapter that we're doing today is Davos 4, which is from A Dance of Dragons, which is, as we've been discussing, probably one of the most popular chapters in A Song of Ice and Fire when people come to vote for their fan fave. It is actually hashtag the most, objectively the most <laughs> popular chapter in all of A Song of Ice and Fire as rated by the Tower of the Hand fan site, where they they did these rankings and and A Dance with Drag- Dragons Davos 4 has been rated the most popular and the best quote-unquote chapter in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. And I don't know about you, but I I love, love this chapter. I really like this chapter a lot. I wouldn't say it's my favorite chapter. And I feel like it surprises me a little bit that this is everybody's favorite chapter. Um, I know that we don't really get a lot of Davos in A Dance of Dragons. And so I think that that also might kind of fuel that a little bit. But it's a good chapter because, number one, we learned a lot of really interesting things, and it's kind of a catalyst because this is the last Davos chapter that we have for a lot of theories and discussion that we all spend half our lives having. The other thing, too, is that this is this chapter is something that's not in the show. It's it's completely separated out from, yeah. from the show. So we have a whole chapter of, of Davos at White Harbor, which has not been a, a site location for the show, at least so far, and Wyman Manderley, who's really... A, an extremely minor character in the show, but takes on a huge larger than life role in this chapter. So it's really fascinating too, because we're, you know, when, when you talk about stuff like the book and the show diverging, here's one of those spots where they're, they're not just diverging, they're on parallel tracks altogether. Cause you have Davos here in white Harbor in in the dungeon at white Harbor in the wolf's den uh, in the show, you know, Davos is sent back, um, go, attend, goes with Stannis to the wall and um, doesn't go to White Harbor at all. He accompanies Stannis down to Winterfell and then he heads back up to the wall right. where he becomes allied with Jon. So it's a really interesting uh, venue where you start to see, you know, some of the things that George has talked about where you have elements of the show that just are not going to match up with with the books um, sometimes, you know, in in small ways and sometimes in big ways. And this is one of those big ways. Would you say, and I know this could very slippery, could be a very slippery slope, <laughs> slope in terms of conversation that we can have and that we have had, but would you say that we can glean anything from what we know about where Davos is in the TV show to where he's going to go beyond this chapter in A Dance of Dragons? And we get a little bit of a hint about where he's headed, but do you think that we can maybe learn anything do you think that those are going to match up? Where do you kind of see this his storyline going from this chapter? It's a, it's a great question. Um, I don't know that the books in the show are going to be that similar in terms of Davos' storyline. I can see where there's a potential for Davos to end up aligning with Jon Snow 
and becoming essentially the hand of the king, uh, the hand of the king of the north with John. But at the same time, when you have this chapter, you know, Davos is still a king's man. He's still backing Stannis and he's still really all in on Stannis and willing to do these really death defying things to on behalf of his king, which is, you know, comes at the very end of the chapter, not to jump too far ahead, but it's, it's really interesting to me. So I don't know that it's really going to line up all that well with what the, uh, the show is as portrayed. Mm -hmm. Um, what, what do you think? Do you think it's going to be that Davos is going to eventually end up with John, or is it going to be something separate or different? Yeah, I don't know, because I, I had similar thoughts to you as you're reading through this chapter. There's so many moments when Davos is like, but have you thought about Stannis? Stannis could do this for you. Like, Stannis is this, and Stannis is that. His son named Stannis that he's thinking about, just kind of like he's so much wrapped up in Stannis's storyline still that it's hard to think about where he is now aligning with someone like John. So yeah, I mean, I don't know what lessons are we supposed to learn from from where he is in the show versus where he is here. I'm not sure. So I don't really have a good answer for that either. Well, it's it's interesting to me that um, when you're looking at the the, pro- the progression of of the books uh, and and what Dan and Dave know about the ending of the of the show, because we know that they know that the the endings and the major and the fates of the major characters that something that George shared with them back in right. 2013. Um, and we can be reasonably sure that one of those major characters was Davos, right? Because he's a point of view character in the books. He's a major figure in Stannis's arc. We also can be fairly sure that the idea that you know Stannis burns his daughter and, and ends up dead probably came from George, although it'll be very different, I assume, in the books than from the show. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, you wonder about the the progression, the journey there. So one of the things that George has talked about is that as a writer, he's what he terms as a gardener. So as a gardener, when he's writing, he's not operating off of a strict outline. Sure, he has like ideas and and a lot of times endpoints for these major characters in mind, but he's also kind of thinking along the way of how he's going to to write the story in terms of he wants things to be organic to do develop organically in the writing process. Like which, the characters you know, kind of write themselves kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. So you have, you know, George talking about things like the Red Wedding, you know, in George's original outline in that letter that he sent um, to his agent back in 1993, there was no Red Wedding. Um, you know, Rob Stark originally was supposed to die in battle against Joffrey and Jamie, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, but there was no Red Wedding that came organically as the story progressed. And that's a really cool way of writing. But the problem is that it's a really slow way of writing because sometimes you're just, and I kind of write in, in the same way as George. Sometimes I'm waiting for like an idea to kind of grab me and catch me. And, you know, sometimes that doesn't happen uh, too quickly. So I have to, you know, kind of think about it for a while, write other things for, for a moment, for a while, and then come back to it when I'm grabbed by some sort of idea. So I'm curious, like, how that's all going to play out because I, I imagine that it's going to be Davos's journey to his end game is going to be very different from the um, what what we see in the show uh, with him with Jon Snow. I think he's going to be on the side of Stannis for for the for a long for the long term. Whether it's for the duration, that's something that I'm not 100 percent sure about, and I'm just going to see if what what George has in store for us come wins and hopefully come spring too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I definitely I agree, kind of along with that. I. I, I don't see him. I mean, with Shireen coming into play and all of that, who knows how that's going to change in the books. Davos's view and alignment to to Stannis as it maybe has a little bit in the show, but 
it's it's like I said, it's kind of tough to separate that as you see him in this situation and in this so much of this chapter in the beginning when he thinks he's going to die, which I also thought was really interesting and was kind of curious on your thoughts on just to back up a little bit. We open sure. up at the beginning of this chapter when we're in Wolf's Den. Davos is here. He's been in jail, I guess. It's like a very <laughs> bougie jail. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and he's eating really well and his cell is pretty decent and he's got a few people kind of coming in and out. Question, I guess, that I thought a lot about while reading this chapter is your thoughts on how Davos didn't really figure out what his situation was and how he didn't realize what was going on and, and that he wasn't going to be killed. Curious what you thought about just basically the headspace that he's in as we're in these first couple pages before we get to this conversation that he has with Manderley. So it's it's interesting because um, Davos's journey in this chapter, I think, is intended to mirror the reader's um, journey in that Davos has the same base of knowledge that we have and that he doesn't know why he's still alive. You know, in Davos's last chapter, we have that whole thing where Wyman Manderley throws him into jail and says, I'll cut off his hands and his, and his head and mount him on uh, on a spike on my walls and all that sort of stuff. But, the, you know, that's what we're left with as a reader. Now, so we see one of the cool things we see in um, the reading order is that in one of Cersei's chapters, we, we learn that, quote, unquote, Davos is dead. Mm -hmm. So it should come as a surprise as you're reading it. This, If you're reading it for the first time, um, I'm not sure how many of you are Right. <laughs> <laughs> Just to make sure there was another Davos chapter. <laughs> right, exactly. Because, I mean, nobody nobody wants Davos to die. But, I mean, if you think about it, like when the books were first released, you have it, A Feast for Crows, which was released in 2005. You have... Davos was reported dead by in one of Cersei's chapters, and yeah. then they had to wait six years, if you were reading the books at the time, to find out that Davos actually did not die. Um, so it's it's interesting. You, you you kind of really understand. I mean, by the end of the chapter, you're like, oh, we should have seen it all along. That why Manderly is playing this long game. But in in the in the context of the of the open, and in the context of the last Davos chapter and that Cersei chapter, you're like, well, would we really know? If we were Davos, why we were alive and why, you know, our furnishings were so nice and comparatively, I guess, to the dungeons that Davos is used to. Because Davos, this isn't the first time Davos has been in a dungeon. Mm -hmm. You know, in A Storm of Swords, he was in the Dragonstone dungeon for, for a while after he attempted to kill Melisandre. So he's he's aware of the dungeons. He's just, he, he realizes there's something wrong or something a little bit um different about this experience and he's trying to figure out why and then when you get that reveal midway through the chapter you're like oh well now it all makes sense and davos has that same sort of realization that sort of crashing realization hit him as well i like he he says very early on in the chapter he's thinking the worst part is not the dying it's not knowing when or how and so every thing that is different from his typical routine or that is the same as his routine or any small thing that somebody like Garth or Bartimus is going to say to him is going to point in one direction or the other about whether or not he's going to live another day. And so I think that it's just this very, it's this very like disorienting experience because yeah. he was, he bought into, rightly so, this idea that he was going to be killed immediately. I mean, we talk a little bit about in his conversation with, with Manderly about how it was such a great show basically that was put on and he did such a great job of really convincing Davos that this was going to be it. As you're saying, we as a reader felt the same way. Yeah, but it's interesting that Wyman comes back and says, oh, that wasn't really all a show if they had found out that I had, that you had, were still alive some way. 
right. then I would have killed you. you <laughs> right, know, right, exactly. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, just to keep us a little humble. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> it could have gone very differently. <laughs> yeah. But those, uh, the jailers are interesting. One of the, the things we talked about in our, our dry run for this is about the, the, the importance. Episode. Right, the lost episode, <laughs> the one we weren't able to, uh, to to come to get out with, but um, about these two minor characters, Bartimus and um, Bartimus and Garth, and and their importance because you know Davos gets a lot of backstory on these characters, um, and he also gets a, a lot of world building too from from Bartimus. You know, you have the character like Bartimus who is a a knight who was awarded the Wolf's Den after he saved Wyman Manderley at the Battle of the Trident. And he provides this huge history lesson about the Wolf's Den and, and the history behind it because it wasn't built by the Manderleys; it was built by the Starks mm-hmm. uh, long ago. Um, and what do you what do you think? Why do you, why do you think that George did that bit of world building with the Wolf's Den and, and included these minor characters in the story and fleshed them out in such a way that you're like, yeah, these these guys are are real and relatable. But at the same time, he does you know shed a lot of ink on. These kind of really minor characters. Why do you think that's that's what George ended up deciding to do? I think that something that George R. R. Martin does really well is gives us a lot of history and backstory in these very clever ways, um, and really, as we're saying, builds out this very complex universe in ways that don't feel like a laborious world building type of situation. Sure. So you kind of look back at this chapter and you go, "Wow, we learned a lot about." the Stark family and, and the way that this all came to be. And um, we learned a lot about the old gods and we learned a lot about just kind of history from, you know, these families that we've been following for a really long time without kind of having to go through a very dry history lesson. And so I feel like we do spend a lot of time getting to know some of these minor characters to kind of help us better understand I I just feel like we it, it just adds this richness to the story that um could very easily be dismissed. Yeah, it's, it it really does and I think it's um it's realistic too because you have this guy who's a who's given this great reward in his in his eyes anyways uh of of being the uh, the commander of the wolf stand or, or owning it or I don't know what his his full status is but he's he's granted it by Wyman Manderley in some capacity. Um and you can the thing about world building is that you can just do a huge info dump, right? You can be like, you know, in, in our history, this happened and this happened and this happened, this right. happened, but it, there's, there's not a really a whole lot of, you know, Payoff. Um, power behind it really, mm-hmm. because it's just a, uh, it's just an info dump. But here you have Bartimus talking about the history of the Wolf's Den and it makes sense in his context because, because he's, proud of what he he owns right he has a real sense of ownership on this thing that he that he's been granted and uh he wants to talk about its history i mean you can you can think about it um you know from a military perspective um you know you have units in in the united states army that can trace their lineage what they call lineage back to events from the civil war from the american indian wars um World War One, World War Two, and all these things, and you can you have soldiers even today who will talk with pride about you know my unit fought at Normandy and and did this event at Omaha Beach, or you know my unit was involved in the Civil War and fought at the Battle of Antietam and and things like that. So it really makes a lot of sense in the in the context of world building to have it be lived through the experience of this guy who's really proud of all that he's been able to accomplish and uh, and yeah I think it's a really good way of doing world building. Right and it puts a it puts a name to 
history. It puts a name to these situations and to these battles. And like you said, I think that for some people, and, and maybe not you, given your background, this like war history can be kind of dry. And so to have somebody, like you're saying, be proud of it, I think I think it makes for a, a really interesting backdrop for Davos to be sitting here and um, to be kind of wrestling with his own legacy a little bit as he thinks that he's about to die and as he's thinking about his family and the type of life he's lived to have the company of men like this. Um, is is an interesting backdrop for him to be, as he thinks and as we think at the beginning, meeting the end of his life. Yeah, right. And you get um, you know this this chapter is is remembered oftentimes for the big speech that Wyman Manerly gives towards the end of the chapter, the North Remember speech. But one of the things about this chapter that I find really uh, lovely is that uh, Davos he's he thinks he's he's about to die and so he he pens a letter to to his wife mm-hmm. who he hasn't seen in, in several months at this point in time in the story and uh, it's really um full of pathos and I'll just I'll just read a little bit of it because it really strikes me as as one of the better written uh, and kind of sad um reflections on on that Davos has about someone he loves and cares about uh Davos writes I was a better smuggler than a knight a better knight than a king's hand, a better king's hand than a husband. I am so sorry, Maria. I have loved you. Please forgive the wrongs I did you. And that uh, that letter really kind of you know speaks to me because it, it, you think about it in terms of this is a man who you know thinks he's knocking on death's door and he's trying to right the the quote unquote wrongs that he did to his wife, and um, it, it really breathes. Um, super strong emotions and pathos into the story and into mm-hmm. Davos too. And you're like, yeah, I, I can really feel that, you know, he's, he, he thinks he's about to go and he wants to, you know, make sure that he's, um, uh, that his wife knows that he loved her and that, um, he wants to be uh, forgiven for the things that he did wrong to her. And that's a really cool way that George ended up writing, you know, Davos's fake out, um, moments before his quote unquote death. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. This was definitely a highlight in the chapter for me. It's just really poignant. And and as he's also thinking about his wife, he then struggles to write to his sons. And he almost feels awkward because he just oh, doesn't yeah. he doesn't know them very well. And he's never he hasn't spent a lot of time with especially the younger ones. And as he's writing to his younger sons, he thinks about his other sons who have who've died in, in this whole situation that he's put his entire family through. Right. And he says um, he says a man should have more to say when staring at the end of his life, he thought, but the words came hard. Um, and he says, I did not do so ill. He tried to t- tell himself, I rose up from flea bottom to be a king's hand and I learned how to read and write. So just kind of wrestling with what he has sacrificed his family, basically, in order to accomplish what he has accomplished. And as he is telling himself here, he's accomplished quite a bit for somebody who's literally started from the bottom. Um, it's, it, it's a it's moment poignant. of triumph, right? Mm-hmm. You know, from a guy who started flea bottom, literally from the bottom, from flea bottom, and then worked his way up to, you know, a, a smuggler, a knight, a lord, the king's hand. Um, you know, that's that's something to be to be proud about. And I think he's he's reflecting a little bit of pride there, but you know, you also feel for him too, because he doesn't know his younger sons because he's been at war for, for so you know, long. A, for so long now. Yeah. And he's he's at the point where he's like, I, I don't even know my sons and I have a hard time writing things to him besides, you know, my biography. Right. Um, you know, he has a better um, 
familiar with this one son. Is that Stan or Devin? Yeah, I think not Stannis because he's one of the younger little ones. It's, I think it's Devin. If I'm wrong, yeah. then I'm wrong. But uh, but yeah, he is. But Devin is is Stannis' squire, and um, it, he knows him better because he's been on campaign with him and he's fought battles alongside of his son, so he knows him better. But at the same time, you know his younger sons. He just he doesn't know how to be a father really, really anymore. So. Yeah, right. it's really. Yeah. I just <laughs> this whole time I'm just like I just want Davos to see his family again, just to be reunited. You know, at this point to be able to see them and kind of maybe fulfill a little bit of that role. And you know, maybe he will have that opportunity, even though he's being sent to millions of miles away. But um, I mean, yeah, here's very poignant. here's hoping. I mean, it's clear that he wants to be reunited with his family, and I and I do wonder. Uh, whether that will be a dynamic that that George ends, ends up exploring in in the Winds of Winter, um, and, and we we can talk about it um, a, a little bit, but it, it's, it does get into stuff from the Winds of Winter itself, some of the sample chapters. But you know, Davos's family is uh, unfortunately come the end of the book; they're they're imperiled again while Davos is away mm-hmm. on, on this mission um, because his family is in the Stormlands and the Stormlands are currently being invaded by uh, the Golden Company and by Aegon and John Connington. And um, one of the things they talk about very briefly in one of John Connington's later chapters is that um, they had taken the Rainwood and Davos's family lives in a castle called, called Rain House in, in the Stormlands. So it's Possible, even probable, that Davos's family is now captive of of Aegon and of John Connington and the Golden Company. So mm-hmm. he's going to have to he he's going to be faced with a, a really terrible choice. I think come the winds of winter, w- whether he's going to serve Stannis um, or go back and, and rescue his sons and his wife, or or figure out a way to get them free. That's um, it's going to be a, a really awful choice for for Davos. And um, yeah, these are definitely themes that he's going to continue to wrestle with regardless of what he ends up choosing. Um, and we yeah. kind of see the beginnings here in this chapter. And then we come <laughs> to the reason why I assume everybody loves this chapter so much, this amazing speech that we get by um, Wayman Manderley and, and this revelation, finally, that Davos is not going to die yet, um, although he could, as we said. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited to kind of break down the speech also, and I also think that we should talk a little bit about the fuel to the fire that this adds to the great slash grand i can never remember which word people (laughs) use northern conspiracy they use both that is a pretty big theory that we can kind of discuss into detail but davos is brought into (laughs) i thought that this was really funny he's brought into the secret meeting um and everyone thinks that um, Wyman Manderley's in the bathroom, basically. <laughs> they're like, they're like, mm, he. They're used to us being gone, so the they're he's um hosting the fray. It's basically for this big dinner, and Davos yeah. is brought up, and he's and Wyman Manderley's like, well, you know, they're people are used to me being gone for a little while, so that's fine. We can just knock this out real quick, um, right. which and I thought was what, so funny. When Wyman says, "Everyone knows that my bowels are bad," or, or something like that, <laughs> yeah. so my, an absence for an hour would not be un- unnoticed. <laughs> um, by the hilarious. by, the phrase or whatnot. Yeah, right. It's it's cool that you get um, this part of of the chapter because it is, and I think one of the reasons why people love this chapter is that it is a major turning point for Davos, where he thinks he's about to die, and then up pops Robert Glover, and Robert Glover, you know, takes Davos away um, and to, to see the, to see Lord Manderly, and you get Manderly, who you finally get 
him at his honest and his most um, authentically awesome. Right. It's a really fascinating uh, conversation that they all have together. But it's it's all precipitated by something that I think is really interesting about Dance with Dragons, the book altogether. In that, you know, you when you come to the the end of a storm of swords, you have to think as a reader, like, well, this this story kind of it doesn't suck, but I mean, it, it it is really kind of a downer because all the bad people in the story keep, you know, winning and they keep getting away with things, you know. Mm-hmm. But here you have, you know, Wyman Manderley and Robert Glover, who are still, you know, they're still loyal Northmen. They're not supporting the Boltons. They're not supporting the Lannisters. They're they're playing, a, you know, a mummer's farce with with the Freys that are at um, that, that are at Merman Hall. And that's a really cool dynamic that George plays with because suddenly, I think for a lot of people, it was like a huge um, cathartic moment to have this realization that, you know, it's it's not all going to go well for the bad guys in the story that you have Wyman Manderley, Robert Glover, and all these other Northmen that are like, you know, we're, we're not going to put up with the Freys and the Boltons and the Lannisters for long. Like this mummer's farce, as, as Wyman Manderley calls it, is at an end. And that's a really kind of hell yeah moment in in the in the books where you're like okay now we can see the potential for the story to be shifted and you know to see some justice perhaps or you know vengeance as we're going to come to find out done to the people who did these awful horrible you know uh, wrong evil i don't know all the the adjectives i can keep using to describe or the way that the phrase and the boltons have acted in the story but their their atrocious behavior so far and that's that's a cool moment to get that this this speech here. The North remembers Laura Davos. The North remembers, and the Mummer's farce is almost done. My son is home. Yeah, it's like this. It's a for the first time in a very long time a genuine glimmer of hope that oh, yeah. the memory of Ned Stark and what House Stark used to be, and the North, and just like you're saying, all of that, all the people that we have loved since day one because that's how we were introduced to this whole yep. world there's still hope for them and and yeah i think that like it, it really is just this glimmer of hope like i said it is right and and it, it you know even before you get to the the north remembers like you get this it still kind of gives me shivers where he says where wyman says my son wendell came to the twins a guest he ate lord walter's bread and salt and hung his sword upon the wall to feast with friends and they murdered him. Murdered, I say. And may the phrase choke upon their fables. I drink with Jared, jape with Simon, promise Rhaegar the hand of my beloved granddaughter, but never think that means I have forgotten. The North remembers Lord Davos. The North remembers. <laughs> it honestly never gets old. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It like never I- gets old because I, I feel like those emotions are still, us as readers are still very much hold on to, you know, everything that's happened and we haven't forgotten. And I feel like we having this reminder of there's still people who are angry and there's still people who are working on the quote unquote good side. And there's still people who feel like they have the opportunity to do something and then kind of reclaim their narrative is, is very exciting. It's, it's, it's exciting. It's exhilarating. It's, it's really awesome to, to get this, this, this speech here, but you know, the interesting thing about this speech is that, you know, Davos thinks, 
you know, okay, now what, you know, what's, why are you telling me this sort of stuff? And, and Davos says he hopes, uh, I, I'm going to be quoting a little bit, um, not verbatim, but he, he, he's hoping that Wyman Manerly will then be like, and now I will take, you know, King Stannis as, Stannis as my king. Yeah. But Wyman doesn't do that. Wyman says, and now I will return back to my feast. And Davos is a little bit, you know, dumbfounded because he's, he's thinking like, I just had this huge speech where, you know, the North remembers and all these, the things that the phrase are telling, you know, Lord Wyman and the other Northmen are fables and uh, we will, you know, they murdered our people, but now you're going to go drink and feast with them. And Wyman says, you know, we're going to, I do have to go drink and feast with them. And, um, you know, is it customary in the South for, uh, to give, get, to give guest gifts? Uh, for those who are who are departing from the presence, and um, you know, Davos says yes, yes, that that that's still a custom that's celebrated in the South. And Wyman says, then you might talking about guest gifts. He says they have no horses with them, so I shall present each of them with a palfrey as a guest gift to host still give guest gifts in the South. Some do, my lord, on the day their guests depart. And then Wyman says, uh, perhaps you understand then, which is an interesting uh, thing that Wyman says because. Uh, Something about guest right in in the books in in Westeros is that guest right means that you can't when when a lord or anyone comes into the presence of a castle and is given salt and bread then they're they have safety but when they depart the castle they're given guest gifts they do not have that same safety that um, that anyone else that they would have when inside the castle or inside the city wherever they're at so it kind of leaves a um, it up to interpretation as to what Wyman Manderley is saying. And as mm-hmm. uh, you might come to find out, those phrases that depart White Harbor, uh, they might meet some sort of um, calamity on the road. So it's uh, it's 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 interesting. And I think that's something that you guys are going to see later on in the story. And I think it's something that will be, um, uh, I'm hoping that you and your readers will catch what I'm, what I'm, we'll pick up what I'm putting down. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm picking up what you're putting down. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> there may be some pies in our future. <laughs> there might be. Large pork pies. Uh-huh. Can you, we go into a little bit of detail about, like I mentioned, the Northern Conspiracy Theory sure. and what Wyman Manderley is doing here, how that plays into what that is for anybody who is listening who's not familiar with with what all of this kind of is pointing towards we think to to try to to do it in a, a little bit shorter than like the, the grand northern conspiracy that was originally put out by um, a tumblr user named yeed y-e-a-d-e you can look for them on google is like a seven or eight part series yeah with, you know twenty five thousand <laughs> words attached to it you could spend hours you could you could spend hours going through it but the the essence of it is that the northmen are playing Stannis Baratheon and Roose Bolton off against each other in order to see to Stark back in as king in the north. Um, that Stark being, um, it, some have said that Jon Snow, others have said that Rickon Stark, who is still alive, as we're going to find out here in a few minutes, they want to put either of these two Starks back on the throne and as as king in the north. And the some of the, the rationale for it comes in that Rob Stark named Jon Snow as his heir in a storm of swords, um, in that chapter right before the red wedding and his will is still out there somewhere. So it's possible the other, the Northmen know that the will is, is there and that names Jon Snow as King. Um, you also have, 
you know, these lords, the Glovers, the the Manderleys. And Manderley mentions um, Old Castle Will's Watch, which I believe are Flint's and Locke's. These are two small houses in the north that he has allegiance to, are working against um, Bruce Bolton. And as you might come to find out in, in the story to come, you know, Wyman Manderley is summoned to Winterfell. Things might not go all that well for the Boltons and for the um, the the relationship between the Boltons and the other northern houses, and especially the Freys, who are absolutely despised by the other Northmen. But then you also have Sans Baratheon in the north as well, and it's seems like the Northmen are using Stannis as a as a tool to remove the Boltons and the Freys from the north. But you know, a lot of this remains to be seen. My personal opinion about the Grand Northern Conspiracy is that I think it works in some capacities, but not in all. Mm-hmm. But it's it, it, just in terms of 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 how the North is 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 operating right now. The North has taken huge losses in the War of the Five Kings. They've lost tens of thousands of soldiers. You know, Winterfell has been burned. Half of the country has been claimed by the Ironborn, although they're currently being ejected from the North right now. The other half is is claimed by the Boltons and the Freys and the Lannisters. At, at a certain point, I do wonder whether there's the Northmen are kind of like, well, we have to we we kind of have to make a devil's bargain with either Stannis or with Bruce Bolton uh, at, at this juncture. I don't know how ubiquitous or widespread knowledge of Rob's will is, since most of the people who knew about it died at the Red Wedding, right? But it's possible that could come to the fore later on, and the Northmen could be like, "Well, we have Rob Stark's will. He was our king. You know, Stannis. You know, thanks for all you're doing for us, but we're gonna kind of you <laughs> know, choose someone else right yeah. now." <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, uh, there's, I, I, and I don't want to disparage this theory because it's a really well written theory, and it's it's something that I always tell people who are just first getting into the whole idea of, of theories to to read about, and and to read the actual theory itself because it is a really well written, dense. And um, compelling theory. There's just I, I'm just not. I guess I'm not as so much on the grand or the great portions of it. I think it might be a little bit more that you know the the Manderleys, the Glovers, some of these other smaller houses are working against the Boltons, and then you have in in Stannis's arc, you have you know Ramsay who was already talking about how he has the Karstarks at, on in his pocket right now. And uh, the Karstarks have sworn to Stannis, so there's, there's the potential for treachery there. So it seems a little bit more what I would call middling as opposed to um, to grand or great at this moment. But we'll see what, what transpires come to Winds of Winter. The moderate northern conspiracy. <laughs> it doesn't have the ring, does it? <laughs> no, it really doesn't. But <laughs> no, I mean, I can definitely I can definitely see what you're saying there. But I do totally agree in the sense of if somebody is just kind of dipping their toes into this whole theorizing world or you're more interested in kind of starting to think ahead to to what story has to come. This is a good one to kind of start with and and get familiar. For sure. What else do we need to talk about? Wax. Yeah, we so we get Wax and if no one has remembered Wax, it's the uh he's the young Greyjoy squire from all the way back from a clash of kings. And uh and Wax makes his grand reappearance in the story as a um uh, providing Davos and Wyman and Robert Glover some uh, interesting information about the whereabouts of a 
of a missing Stark, his dire wolf, and their uh, their wildling friend. Mm-hmm. We think for half a second that it's Rickon himself <laughs> right. that that is going to be brought into the hall, which is kind of this disorienting moment of wait, are we going to see Rickon again? But no. But yeah, it's just just Wex who they're still kind of teasing information out of because he can't speak. So yeah, they've learned a little bit about where Rickon and his squad maybe and that's where davos is being sent to basically what ends up happening is that if if, if davos can bring back the stark boy and a dire wolf that uh wyman manderley will declare for stannis and it would be it, it's a if davos can do this thing then it'd be a huge coup for stannis because you know wyman says i have been building warships for more than a year which is actually something that wyman manderley was commanded by bran stark to do back in a clash of kings um if, if you're keeping track of what's, what's really cool about this chapter is all the callbacks to to events from earlier books that you might have forgotten about or kind of got swept under the rug as, as you know, these big events happen. But uh, continuing on, some you saw, but there are many more hidden up the white knife. Even with the losses I have suffered, I still command more heavy horse than any other northern lord uh, or rather than any lord north of the neck. My walls are strong and my vaults are full of silver. Old Castle and Widow's Watch will take their lead from me. By bannermen include a petty dozen, uh, a, include a dozen petty lords and a hundred landed knights. I can deliver King Stannis the, the allegiance of all the lands east of the White Knife, from Widow's Watch and Ramsgate to Sheep's Head Hills and the headwaters of the Broken Branch. All this I pledge to you if you will meet my price. I mean, that's no small offer. No, it's it's huge. You're talking about thousands of soldiers, and something that Stannis has struggled with throughout the narrative is he doesn't have enough men to do these massive feats that he wants to do, take back the Iron Throne, seize King's Landing. Um, so he's always at a major numerical disadvantage. And now you have Lord Wyman Manderley offering a, a, a you know, a lion's share of of men, soldiers, supplies, money, if only Davos Seaworth can meet a Lord Wyman Lord Wyman's price, which just is a uh, small, just a quick little trip to Skagos. Right. Davos says for half a heartbeat, Davos considered asking Wyman Manderley to send him back to the wolf's den. Like, <laughs> maybe this isn't going to be worth it. <laughs> well, right. Yeah. Like, and, and you know why that is because he says there are some lands where, you know, men feast on, on other men's flesh and you're like, okay, well that makes sense. And, um, <laughs> in, in the chapter itself, it doesn't reveal that Davos is going to Skagos. But, you know, you, you get the only place in Westeros currently that has a tradition of cannibalism is Skagos. And they've had that tradition for a long, long time. And um, yeah, so Davos, Lord Wyman Manderley wants Davos to go to Skagos to grab Rickon and the Dire Wolf and bring them back. And then he'll declare for them, but he only has to escape an island full of cannibals, alleged cannibal, quote unquote, alleged cannibals. And uh and get himself, get Rickon, come back, and then you know, Stannis suddenly has thousands more soldiers and, and the backing of, of one of the most powerful lords in all of the North. So, I mean, even with that, you know, the danger that would lie ahead for Davos, I mean, it's a very attractive offer. So It is. But, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's sad because this is the final Davos chapter in all of, it's the, the final Davos chapter at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, Recording in December 2017, uh, The Winds of Winter is not out um, yet, and we don't know what what happens to Davos when he when he takes off. But um, there was something interesting, and, and this does go into a little bit of, of a minor Winds of Winter spoiler. Um, 
there's actually two interesting things. Uh, one thing is that in a few years ago, George was giving a speech at um, Texas A&M, and he mentions that when he gets back to writing about o- Osha, Osha the Wildling, that he plans to be writing her more in the vein of uh, Nat- Natalia Tanya or Tena. Mm-hmm. Is that how you pronounce her name? I'm not sure. To be honest with you, <laughs> Tonks from yes, Tonks from Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah. So, to, so when he gets back to writing Tonks, um, he plans to be writing her uh, Osha more in the vein of of uh, Tonks's performance from Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. So it seems that the only character who's on their way to visit with Tonks is you know Lord Davos Seaworth. Right. And then the other thing is that a few months ago, um, back in August, I think. George was at a convention in St. Petersburg, and um, this—I don't know how this question came about—but he mentioned that in *The Winds of Winter*, we'll be seeing unicorns for the uh, for the first time in the story. And the only place in Westeros currently that has unicorns is the island of Skagos. So, um, man, I'm so excited! <laughs> isn't it right? <laughs> unicorns and, and Tonks. I think that's that's something to look forward to. Come the winds of winter, the unicorn. There you go. Or yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean, so from all that, we have to infer that Davos at least makes it there. Yeah. Um, and, and at least have, unless we all of a sudden get a Osha or Rickon POV, unicorn POV. There you go. I'm all for it. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think about like the next time we do a Davos chapter on this podcast will be a Winds of Winter likely Davos Isn't chapter, that cool? which is really, really exciting. So. Bring it on. <laughs> um, okay. I think we've done done that chapter justice. Hopefully we've done that chapter oh, a whole lot of justice. Yeah, hopefully we've done everyone's favorite chapter enough justice. Looking for more ways to treat your pup? You should try BarkBox, a monthly delivery of the best paw-picked all-natural treats and innovative toys to match a dog's unique needs, including allergies and heavy chewer preferences, including my dog Strike. Every BarkBox ships free within the continental U.S. And it's a great way to try a variety of U.S. and Canada-made treats and unique toys from local and small businesses that you may not otherwise be able to find. Plus, each box is centered around a different theme like Country Fair, Bark Ball, Poo York City, or Brooklyn Hipster to keep dogs engaged, interested, and happy. And when your dog falls in love with something from the box, you can easily find it again on BarkShop.com and the BarkBox app or by texting BarkBox. But if for some reason your dog doesn't like something in the box, BarkBox will send you something they will love for free because they're all about dog happiness. I am not lucky enough myself to own a dog, but Zach, I know that you have Strike, and I can't wait to hear what he thinks. Yeah, this was an amazing sponsor. Strike reacted in a way that he doesn't normally react to packages in the mail, and he's been reacting to the treats and the toys since. I actually have two of the toys underneath my table right now. That's so cute. And my grandma is obsessed with BarkBox as well. I don't know that she knows that they're a sponsor of our podcast, and I think that that's okay, but every time I go over to the farm, I have to hear about Scooter's new toy. So visit BarkBox.com slash owns for a free extra month of BarkBox when you subscribe to a 6- or 12-month plan. That's BarkBox.com slash O-W-N-S for a free extra month when you subscribe to a 6- or 12-month plan. Today's show is sponsored by HelloFresh. 
HelloFresh is a meal kit delivery service that shops, plans, and delivers your favorite step-by-step recipes and pre-measured ingredients so you can just cook, eat, and enjoy. With HelloFresh, all the ingredients are delivered right to your door in recyclable, insulated packaging and come pre-measured in handy labeled meal kits so you know which ingredients go with which recipe. And HelloFresh offers a wide variety of chef-curated recipes that change weekly, including the Classic Plan, which comes with a variety of meat, fish, and seasonal produce. The Veggie Plan, which is built upon vegetarian recipes with plant-based proteins. And the Family Plan, quick and easy meals the whole family will love. Better yet, you can choose a delivery day that works best for your busy schedule and even pause your account for weeks at a time. HelloFresh makes it so easy to cook delicious, balanced dinners for less than $10 a meal. No more time-consuming meal planning or grocery shopping. Enjoy not spending money on takeout for an easy night or worrying about gathering ingredients week after week. It's healthier and a lot more fun to prepare your meals at home, whether you're cooking alone or if you're cooking with friends. It is a task to go to the grocery store and to personally find and sort out all of the correct ingredients to make a dish let alone to complete the proper nutrition profile. And that's my favorite thing about using HelloFresh is that it's all prepared for me and it's a very simple process. Also, the best thing about that is it's very easy to clean up. For $30 off your first week of HelloFresh, visit HelloFresh.com and enter the promo code OWNS30. That's O-W-N-S-30. The next chapter that we did, we did today was Jamie Four from A Feast for Crows, which is a little bit of a shift in perspective. I have to ask you this. Do you like this chapter? I actually do like this chapter. Better than the Davos chapter? I don't know if I like it better than the Davos chapter, but this is just a very A Feast for Crows chapter, if that makes it, sense, you know? No, no, I absolutely understand what you're saying. It's, it's, I would say the same thing. It's very much, it feels very Feast for Crowsy, you know, if that makes sense. Whereas the Davos chapter feels very Dance with Dragon, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. And there's no other way to explain it other than this is like, this is a very a Feast for Crows chapter. Um, we're spending a lot of time with Jamie. I will say I love, um, again, where this reading order comes into play. Jamie mentions Willis Manderley um, and how he Damn. had charged Red Ronnet with the task of delivering him back. Um, it says so he wouldn't have to look at him henceforth. So <laughs> we get a little bit of that connection here um, between these two chapters. This is after Jamie breaks Red Ron's jaw, right? He does that in the last chapter, if I'm remembering correctly. I, I think so. I'm, I'm I'm kind of a little bit blanking because I've I, I didn't actually read that chapter prior to, to doing this one. Yes. Sure. Yes. No. I already <laughs> forgot. I'm sure someone will, will correct. We'll, yeah. I'll get plenty of tweets about please. it. Please. Um, <laughs> please. But so, I mean, throughout this entire chapter, we get a lot of Ansel doing his thing. We get a lot of sparrows. We get a lot of spending time in castles. I don't know. I just, I felt like it was a, it was a good chapter. And so I don't know if you felt that same way or if there was something about this chapter that put you off or how you feel about about it in I, terms of the Davos chapter. I do like this chapter. Um, I And there's stuff that I really, really like about the chapter and there's stuff that I'm, I'm okay with, I, I guess it, it is, it is kind of a travel chapter and, yeah. you know, Jamie, and it's, it, you know, it's interesting that George writes it, that Jamie goes out of his way to go to Castle Derry, right? Because, you know, he, it's really not on the way to River Run if you look at the map and Jamie even says as much or thinks as much. He does. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's, there's interesting things, you know, the book is called a feast for crows and, you know, it, it is really kind of a feast for crows because castle dairy 
you know, the start of Game of Thrones belonged to House Derry. And House Derry has been just completely extinguished. Like it is done, gone. Mm-hmm. Every last member is dead from from House Derry. Now, not everyone by blood or or by um, by birth, but it, there is a the, the dairies themselves. People who call themselves the the dairies are gone. But you know, it's um, it is, and the the people in their place are are the Lannisters and the Freys. Like you have the two people that are feasting on you know, the, the deaths of these, you know, of an entire house and they've taken a whole castle. And so, you know, when I read this chapter, when I read this chapter now, I, I get a real sense of in, a feeling of injustice from behind what the Lannisters and the phrase did to, and the Lannisters in particular in the War of the Five Kings um, by destroying this house. You know, Gregory Clegane, yeah. I think he he executed the, the child, I think it was a child lord, I think he was like seven or eight years old. From the from the War of the Five Kings, I don't even think he's given a name in in the book. Um, but he's he's a kid, and Gregor Clegane killed him. Um, and you know, you have the vultures come in after the after the Darys are gone, uh, being the Lannisters, being Lancel Lannister, and being his you know alleged wife, um, Amari Frey. Um, so you have the two houses that benefited from. Uh, from from a war atrocity coming in and taking this great castle in, in their own name and it's it's it I feel the injustice of the chapter and I'm I didn't feel it previously when I read it but now I really really do I think that I mean you make a great point because and we get this conversation midway through the chapter that Jamie has with Lancel's wife and and some of these other people who've been around much longer about how she's basically begging Jamie to stay and kind of help with like the barrack and, and the hound and, and protect protect them and and kind of all these different things that have been happening to these regular people i guess you could say like right. that are that aren't are these characters that we've been following or these big families they're just the people who've been swept up into this massive war that's happening and we get a little bit of jamie having the opportunity to have and and try and and maybe succeed, maybe fail. Time will only tell. To to give them some advice on how to deal with basically what's going on with some of these small folks. So it, it's yeah. it's this very interesting and like broad conversation that just r- taking some time to reread a feast for crows and like really spend time with it brings to light these issues that are so very easily glossed over when you're reading for plot and when you're trying to figure out. Jamie, where the heck are you know? Where are you going? Let's kind of right get no, through I, this. I, you're absolutely right. It it is, it, you know, it's it's funny. They're like, oh, protect us from these outlaws, from Sandra Clegane, from Beric Dondarrion, from the Hooded Woman, who names herself Lady Stoneheart. <laughs> um, but you, you people were the cause of all of these horrible people operating in your lands. You know, Tywin Lannister brought, you know, the the bloody mumbers over from Essos to Westeros to fight his wars and to be awful, horrible war atrocity committing soldiers in the land, the riverlands, the brotherhood without banners sprang out of existence because of all of the atrocities that the Lannisters were doing in the riverlands. Mm-hmm. You know, these, this is the consequence of your actions. And you're asking Jamie who does bear some, um, uh, complicity with, you know some of these things that are happening in the Riverlands to to protect them, and you know I <laughs> I 
I understand where they're coming from. Like you, you do understand where they where they're coming from. It's very realistic that they would want to be protected by Sir Jamie Lannister. And he brings close to a thousand soldiers with him out of King's Landing. Um, most of them Lannister or or Westermen um, troops that are coming up. So they, they would you would understand why they want to be protected. But at the same time, like you guys are the ones who created the situation that allows this chaos to erupt in your lands. That you know that's why the war is not over. Um, and exactly. that's why it's so lawless here because of the events and the decisions and the actions that you made and committed during the War of the Five Kings, that these are the consequences. So I want to be like, deal with your own shit, man, like right. <laughs> at a certain point. Well, do you think that Jamie, do you get the sense that Jamie understands that at all? Or do you think that he's so focused on some of these other, to him, bigger issues with, with someone like Lancel or when he finds out what happens with the sparrows or the warrior sons being armed and all that kind of stuff do you think he sees the and again what he is directly and indirectly done um do you think he sees these as his own consequences or do you think that that's not something that's really registering with him at this point it's not really registering you know jamie is is often said to be to have a redemption arc in a song of ice and fire like when you meet him in a storm of swords he's this brash arrogant guy who pushes children out of windows and, you know, is fighting in the Riverlands against Edmure Tully and is despoiling the lands. And then when you get him his point of view, it comes come a storm of swords. You know, you you start to to hum he becomes humanized. You start to realize that he is the King Slayer, but he had reasons for killing Ares the Second. Um, you know, and Jamie saved a million lives by killing the king and ensuring that the city didn't blow up. But I wouldn't call it really a redemption arc because you still have these chapters like Jamie Ford from A Feast for Crows where he's he's not coming to grips with his complicity in you know the despoiling of the Riverlands and how awful things are for these people, um, both from the highest lord to the lowest peasant. You know, they're they're all suffering in it. And part of the suffering is comes as a result of what Jamie's done. And he's not grappling with that. And he's really, really um so focused on things that he wants to take care of. Mm -hmm. um, in this case, he wants to meet up with with Lancel Lannister uh, for reasons that you know come to bear, come to uh, come to fruition at the end of the chapter. But there's there's really a uh, there's no sense in, in in this chapter that that Jamie is like, well, you know, this is you know kind of my fault. It's 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 just not there, at least not yet. Maybe yeah. it'll come in, in later chapters. Or later books, but so far Jamie is just not in a place where he's anywhere near admitting fault or guilt for what happened to Castle Derry, to House Derry, to the Riverlands at large. Baby steps, though. This is a very <laughs> feminist chapter for Jamie, though. So he is making baby steps and progress in some ways. So <laughs> some there's some redemption arc that's happening here. But I mean, he he does see. I mean, he does have this conversation with Lancel about how he needs to, if he's going to hold on to this place, and he needs to do it the right way, and he needs to get a son, and he needs to kind of, he can't just kind of hide out in his makeshift sept. He has to do something about it and like hold these lands. It is clear that that he has advice for for Lancel, but you know he's speaking to to not the same to not his cousin anymore at least not the cousin that he knew uh from times past um he he's talking with a completely changed character um one of the character traits that Lancel has is now that he is 
become extremely uh, religious. And it's uh, it's interesting because Lancel is again, and I think he says this at the end of the chapter, is that he wanted to be Jamie, right? Yeah. For his entire life, he wanted to be Jamie, and there is some real sadness there. But you also see Lancel early in, in earlier books, in A Game of Thrones, in A Clash of Kings, trying to play the part of Jamie. He's but he's he's play acting. He can't be Jamie Lannister. There's as Jamie says, you know, Catelyn back in a Clash of Kings, there are no men like me, just me. Um he can't be Jamie Lannister, but he tries, and the consequence of him trying to be Jamie Lannister is that he took a vicious wound at the Battle of the Blackwater. And, you know, he's um one of the things and it's kind of sad if you think about it, um, for a fictional character, but it's it's sad because Lancel talks about how, or rather, Jamie thinks that the rumor going around King's Landing was that Lancel was was infertile, that he couldn't produce children anymore. Like he he lost, you know, something to himself um, that was very personal and and very you know sad at the same time. You got the, he's only like what seventeen, yeah, eighteen, nineteen, maybe maybe tops. I, 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 it's probably list, listed somewhere, but he's. He's very young, and he's he's he would have had his whole life ahead of him, and he's he's a victim and a casualty of of his own family's wrongdoing, and that's that that's sad to think about. He's another one of those uh, victims of, I guess you could say, what Jamie the the he's kind of like left in Jamie's wake as he's kind of made his way through the storyline. Kind of one of those people that's fallen maybe in, indirectly due to Jamie's just the way that he is. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh. He's he's definitely a product of of his environment, or product of 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 Jamie's wake, and that's. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to say they have a really interesting conversation about Lancel and Faith, and what his motivations are, and they get into a lot of things that have happened with Robert, with Cersei, with the you know this this confession that Lancel says he he has with the High Septon, which is stressful to even think about everything that the high septon is going to know from someone like Lancel. Um, they talk about the warrior sons. And, and so the, I feel like this is a pretty big conversation for Jamie to be having as we see, as he goes out to practice with Ilan Payne. I, I feel like everything that's happening with the faith and everything that's kind of building um, is to me in this read through much more interesting than it's ever been before for reasons who knows why? But I just I'm so much more interested in this whole fanaticism that's kind of brewing and that Lancel is very much playing a big, big part of right now. Yeah, for sure. And one of the things that George does really, really well throughout the Song of Ice and Fire, but he he hones it in really here really well here in, in Jamie Four, is that he talks about these huge macro events and that the faith is allowed to rearm and that you have warrior sons and poor fellows who are now, you know, taking up arms again. And are that Castle Derry right now, and they're protecting the Sept from from Jamie going in. And you, Jamie, is like is confused because he's like, "Well, I thought there was a Targaryen king, and he can't right. remember which one it was, <laughs> who outlawed the Faith from from rearming." It's like, what 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 is going on here? Who would let um, this happen? <laughs> right. But you, so you have these these huge macro events that you see from Cersei's earlier chapter, um, where Cersei allows the High Sparrow to rearm, and allows the Faith to rearm. But then you see it at the micro level too, in in the character of Lancel Lannister, in that you see how fanaticism 
has really impacted this this kid. And um, you know, one of the things that Jamie asks after his cousin, and they're like, "Oh, well, he's he's in the sept." And then Jamie's then like, "Okay, that's fine. I'll, I'll catch up with him later." And he's like, "Well, where can I, you know, sleep?" And he's like, "Oh, you can sleep in the, in the Lord's chambers." And Jamie's like, "Well, doesn't Lord Lancel Lannister sleep there?" And and the quote is. You know, Lord Lancel's been sleeping in the Sept. So you have this kid who's been traumatized by war, who has now gravitated towards a, a very fanatical version of faith as kind of his his base, his foundation for his foundation for for existing. And that's it's it's tough to kind of to kind of read that, but you do see like the the beauty of George's writing where you get that macro major events happening in King's Landing, impacting what's going on at Castle Derry, but also impacting an individual. Mm-hmm. And it's in that individual ramification that you really see the role of fanaticism borne out in Lancel Lannister as a character. Um it, and also the Castle Derry as well and his wife and his his, his mother in law and his, his sister in law too. And even all just the sparrows that are gathering. I can't remember exactly what what Jamie says but he thinks as he's there that there's too many sparrows everywhere and and too many phrases as well and he just it's something that's really starting to gain prevalence um in this place that is farther away from King's Landing and farther away from Cersei's decisions I, and I, I think that that's kind of what's made this so enjoyable is to really I've just had the opportunity to like think about and we think about what Lancel will do and kind of what his role may be going forward and and what he ends up doing through the end of where we are in the in the story and and I think that Jamie asks him a really interesting question as he goes through everything that's happening and he says are you running to the high septon are you running to Cersei you know and and kind of where what are the motivations behind what you're trying to do and trying to accomplish here and and um yeah I just think that it's it's interesting and to see somebody like Lancel kind of go through that and, and to have Lancel confirm to Jamie kind of basically his worst fears in terms of Cersei. And, yeah. and he he spirals for Jamie into this like which what was my favorite part of this chapter, this this um spar that he has with Ilan Payne as he kind of word vomits out all of these different things that had happened between him and Cersei and the last time they were at this castle and and things with Robert that basically have we've known that Lancel has had these relationships for a while as a reader, but it's something that Jamie hasn't really fully been able to confirm. And now he's got that confirmation. And I just felt like this, the paragraphs that followed were some of my favorite of Jamie's character because I just felt like they're so real and raw and like genuine emotion as he's fighting um, and trying to practice with Ellen Payne was a really, really good way to, to end this chapter with Jamie. Yeah, it was, and um, and and I'm trying to find the quote, but there's there's a part where Lancel, I think he even asked Jamie, like, "Have you come to kill me?" Right? Doesn't mm-hmm. doesn't he say something like that? And you're like, you know, and Lancel says that he dreamed that a white knight, Jamie being a white knight of the King's Guard, had had killed him, and uh, Jamie's like, "Well, why would I kill you?" And, and he admits to to sleeping with Cersei and. Um, and to to killing the king. So one of the things, you know, again, that the whole thing of Lancel operating in, in Jamie's shadow is, you know, Jamie says, you know, what what wrongs have you done? You know, I, I killed my king. 
And Lancelot says, well, I, I also killed my king because he was responsible or, or played a part in, in Robert Baratheon's death back from a Game of Thrones. We're both kingslayers, he We're says. We're both kingslayers, right? But for Jamie, you know, Jamie lost his hand, but he's he's doing okay, all things considered. Um, Lancel, though, is, is, is really not doing okay um, in, in this chapter at all. Uh, and it's 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 hard reading from uh, from from this perspective of, of a guy who's lost a whole lot of stuff, and now you have Jamie coming back in, and and Lancel, I think, is he seems like he's ready to die at Jamie's hand in the, in the sept. I don't know if you got that impression too. Hmm. No, but that's that's really interesting. That's really interesting. But yeah, but there's also a uh, there's a there's a there's a threat too in there. And that, um, you know, Lancel says, you know, I was angry with her grace after the battle, but the high septon said I must forgive her. And then Jamie is just, again, dumbfounded. He says, you confessed your sins to the high, to his high holiness. Or rather, you confessed your sins to the high holiness, did you? You know, he prayed for me when I was wounded. He was a good man. And then Jamie thinks he's a dead man. Yeah. Um, and that, that ends up happening, we find out earlier, is that you know the, the High Septon had died allegedly in his sleep. And as you come to find out, there might be a little bit more to that uh, dynamic as, as, um, in, in some later chapters. But it's, uh, it's, 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 it's tough. You it's know? Like you, can, you can see Jamie's life flash before his eyes as he hears that Lancel's made all these different confessions. Right. Right. Basically. Because he could, you know, there's just... There's just so many there's so many things that have been weaved together that one small string breaking can and as we see lead to this like tumble and downfall of everything that um the Lannisters have, have worked so hard to build build and you see some of these kind of break and fall apart here in this chapter. You do, and it's uh it's you've the the, the faith might be aware of, of Cersei's crimes. And uh, her incest and um, her unfaithfulness to Robert Baratheon. Not to say that Robert Baratheon was particularly faithful, because we know he wasn't. And now you're giving them the ability to arm themselves. Mm-hmm. That's that could have some major consequences down the road um, for for these characters and uh, for Jamie and for Cersei. And um, and yeah, I mean the show already has portrayed some of it from from previous seasons where the High Sparrow. Now rearmed, um, throws Cersei in prison, and you hit the, the Walk of Shame from season five. And um, yeah, it's uh, there. There's it's some scary. consequences there for for Cersei, and you kind of get this well-rounded perspective that Cersei kind of really, you know, screwed the pooch with uh, by rearming the Faith, and these you're starting to see some ramifications of that in this 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 Jamie chapter so quickly after it happened. And it's it's frustrating. We spent a lot of time on that chapter with Cersei, kind of going back and forth and discussing around and around what motivated her to make that decision and, and kind of what the repercussions of that are going to be. And to have, I mean, you're seeing it in this chapter, and it's so frustrating because, I mean, and even Jamie is saying that. You know, how could Cersei have made such a, an awful decision, and how could she have put <laughs> herself in such a bad place? And right. we see so quickly how this is changing the landscape of of Westeros basically. I mean we see their sparrows are everywhere and and they're armed and Lancel is wanting to join them up and you know 
the secrets of the Lannisters are starting to spill out. And it's just, it's so easy to see. And somebody like Cersei is so tied up and, and wrapped up in her own little thing that she can't kind of look at the larger consequences and take a look at the landscape of what she's doing. And so it's just, it's so frustrating because it would be so easy to not yep. have done that. But it, it would have been, here we are. but here we are. And, uh, you know, it's, it's another one of those things where you see it, things that they operating in the macro level, but you also see, see things operating in the micro level. There's this uh, really cool um, series of thoughts that Jamie has as he's in the sept with Lancel that I wanted to, to read real quick. Yeah, um, please. It says that Jamie glanced about the sept at the gods, the mother full of mercy, the father stern in judgment, the warrior one hand upon his sword, the stranger in the shadows, his half-human face concealed beneath the hooded mantle. I thought I was the warrior and Cersei was the maid, but all the time she was the stranger, hiding her face from my gaze. And I think that's an interesting way of looking at it. And I think it's Jamie having another bit of a, a, a reveal about, about Cersei Lannister, who he's still half in love with, and but has been learning as the story progresses that perhaps her love for him is is now is nowhere near nowhere near matches and perhaps is his love for her and perhaps isn't even love at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you see, I mean he just it's like he's almost lovesick at the end of this chapter and just like this anger that he has as oh, he's, yeah. and I think, yeah, I mean, these are, these are turning points of him realizing, yeah, exactly what you're saying, who she is and then kind of what their relationship has been this whole time. Yeah. And, you know, all of these thoughts about Cersei being the stranger and his kind of brokenheartedness that she wasn't actually the maid or the human ramf- or the human personification of the maid leads him to reminiscing about the last time when they were at, they were at Castle Derry from Game of Thrones, where he's sparring with Ellen Payne and he's uh, recounting how he was in Raymond Derry's bedchambers and he you had sex with with Cersei and as Robert is um, there on the floor. This story is wild. <laughs> Isn't it? It is wild. The like story is wild. You, you know, you have to wonder, like, whether, like, those, uh, just the the nature of, and I'll probably get in trouble from somewhere, but, but the the nature of, like, the deviancy of, of the incest has led them to, like, be increasingly, increasingly more dangerous and more devious in, the, in their sexual relationship as they progressed forward throughout the story. So, yeah, with Robert on the floor. He says, if his grace had woken, I would have killed him then and there and then. Ta- Jamie I talking about for- Robert. Yeah. And then that, yeah, that classic, the things I do for love, which yep. is wild. And it's this whole twisted thing about the fact that Cersei wanted to to punish Arya, right, for what happened to Joffrey and that she wanted to kill her, basically. And Robert yeah. didn't want to do that. And they argued and they argued trying to protect Arya. And Jamie comes and, yeah, it's just like this twisted insanity that Jamie is very much owning up to in this conversation that, well, that's not a conversation in this, in this just word vomit of everything that's happening. You know, he's, it's like he's unraveling all of this stuff that he's just been kind of keeping and dealing with and seeing as as Cersei kind of falls from grace a little bit in his eyes, all of these different things are just coming out. And I just, this story is just wild. (laughs) That's all I have to say. <laughs> it, it is, yeah. It is not a, it is not a nice story, and it's, um, 
Yeah. Um, the, the, the one thing is you had mentioned earlier that, that, that Jamie's on a redemption arc and, and there are aspects of it for certain in this chapter, but there's this line, you know, one of the last lines of the chapter is when Jamie's reflecting on that about chasing after Arya Stark. And he says, it was only by chance that Stark's own men found the, the girl before me. Mm-hmm. If I had come on her first and then it's dot, dot, dot. And he doesn't finish the thought, but it you're led to believe as the reader that Jamie was about to say, if I had come on her first, I would have killed her because that's what Cersei had wanted. Yeah. He didn't need to finish that sentence. He did not. Which is scary to think about. And then he fights Hill and Payne, and that's a cool little- <laughs> I've said this before. I just love, love, love this montage that I have in my head of Jamie and Ilan Payne fighting in the dark in random places all across just- practicing and jamie's yelling and he's confessing all these things and ilan Payne is just <laughs> clacking cackling sometimes yeah and just looking at him and it's just it's <laughs> such this great image that i just have in my head as we go through these chapters of him of jamie just uh, what is it he says let me pull up exactly what he says because all i right. just thought it was oh yeah the, i mean the the very end of the the er- very end of this chapter he's basically like kill me if you can like he's spitting he's just he is just looking for a fight. And so I just I had this great image in my mind of of all of these little sparring matches. And it's just been such a treat in these chapters. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it absolutely is. And and Alan Payne's a, a I wouldn't say he's a cool character because you don't really know much about him besides his look, his appearance, but I do love how he was <laughs> always look. clacking at Jamie. Yeah. Which Jamie takes to mean laughing. And um yeah, I mean it's 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 funny and interesting. Um and, and you know, in in the show, I I I like the dynamic of of Jamie and Bronn being this kind of buddy cop team right. in the show, and kind of having this kind of back and forth and uh, going on road trips together down to Dorne or out to the Reach or you know all these different things that that they're doing together. And it's funny, and there's the dynamic between Jerome Flynn and Nikolai Kostrowaldu is is good. It's they have a good dynamic. You can maybe maybe I'm reading too much into it, but you can see that they genuinely like each other and and get along well. But at the same time, you know, and, and I, I always feel like I'm I come on to your show, come on to Game of Owns to criticize the show, but I don't mean to criticize the show <laughs> here. I just, I, I just, I, I do like the dynamic of of exactly how you describe it of Jamie, like just going wild, fighting ill and pain, and you know, then he's against a silent guy who can only like do this kind of clack 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 mm-hmm. sound response. I really like it. I just sent you a picture on Skype of Alan Payne. <laughs> oh, I gotta see this. This picture that, uh, oh, for those yeah. of you who listen to Rewatch the Throne, um, Zach, Evan, and I are obsessed with this picture <laughs> of Alan Payne. <laughs> There's no real reason behind it, but he's just kind of like staring off into the void. If you Google Alan Payne, it's pretty much the only picture that comes up of him. It's a good picture. It's just funny <laughs> to think about him. I know. I, I totally see what you're saying, though. This like imagining kind of this braun jamie relationship but it's ill and pain instead i think it would be is is very cool i mean well the reason why ill and pain didn't come back was that the um the actor got sick right he got cancer mm-hmm. i think and he thought that he was going to die but he actually did not end up dying um and he's made a full recovery or the cancer is a remission i don't know what the, i don't know which which one it is and I, and I hope it's a full recovery but um but yeah i was i was really hoping that once you know he had come back that he wanted, he was going to come back again. But you know, I, I don't blame him necessarily if you know he wants to spend time with his family and friends yeah. instead of acting. 
I think he was a musician too. I can't remember what band he played for. It's going to eat me up. I'll have to look it up later. We're going to remember in the middle of the night. Exactly. It always happens. <laughs> but yeah, I, I miss Ellen Payne from the sh- from in the show, but I, you know, it's it's a nice thing to have the books too because you get a really different um, take on Jamie and a really interesting um, little bit of deviation and and a different dynamic or at least an earlier dynamic because Jamie's break with Cersei has been you know, kind of progressing and is kind of really heating up as he's getting farther and farther away from King's Landing and from Cersei Lannister. And and now he's finding out that Tyrion wasn't lying to him when he said, you've been fucking Lancel and Moonboy and every Osmond Kettleblack and for all I know. Exactly. So, yeah. Well, should we uh, go against tradition and do our owns for this Jamie chapter first before we go back to yes. owns for, for Davos? Maybe shake things up a little bit? We should. I'm trying to think as I... I've got one. Okay, you go first, then I'll, I'll go second. Okay, so it's a... Uh, we didn't talk about this in, in the chapter itself, but one of the things that happens in the chapter is that Jamie feasts with the phrase that are there uh, before he meets up with Lancel. And um, Lancel's wife, Lady Amari, says, is talking about her father um, and talking about how her father had been killed by outlaws, quote unquote, and something that's... We also didn't talk about. There's so many things to talk about in this There's Jamie so chapter. So many things we didn't talk about as I'm looking through. <laughs> the uh, Mary's father was Merritt Frey, who, if you guys remember, was um, uh, the point of view character from the Storm of Swords epilogue, the one that Lady Stoneheart hanged. And um, Mary is is talking about her father, and she says, "Outlaws killed him." Sobbed Lady Mary. Father had only gone out to ransom Peter Pimple. He brought them the gift. He brought them the gold they asked for, but they hung him anyway. <laughs> And her mother-in-law, her mother says, "Hang, Amy, your father was not a tapestry." <laughs> <laughs> like, can you, you like you have to imagine this yeah, scene of this yeah. poor girl pouring out her heart about her father dying, and then her mom being like, "Look, you got to use correct grammar, even if you're talking about your dad." <laughs> yeah. Biting it. That's really good. I'm gonna give my own to another hilarious moment where Jamie is leaving his conversation with Lancel and. Lancel asks him if he says, will you pray with me, Jamie? And Jamie says, I forgot the words, pray with me if you like. Um, And then it says the sparrows were still fluttering about the steps when Jamie stepped back out into the night. Thank you. He told them, I feel ever so much holier now. (laughs) (laughs) That was just very good. So, okay. Davos. 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 Wow. There's so many potential owns for this one. The only one I have is one that we've already talked about. And I try really hard, as I've said before, yep. to not give my own to something that we've already talked about. But I just thought that this moment was literally so hilarious. Um, so <laughs> I'm going to bring it up again. I'm going to give my own to uh, Lord Wyman, literally, oh, yeah. who says, I have just come from the high table. I have eaten too much as ever, and all White Harbor knows my bowels are bad. My friends of Frey will not question a lengthy visit to the privy, we hope. It's just so, this, the fact that this entire conversation begins with that and is based around this idea that the Freys <laughs> think he's in the bathroom is just like the funniest thing <laughs> in the world to me. So that's my own. <laughs> you know, um, not not to spoil those who are, who are following along sequentially with you guys, but you know, keep in keep that in mind. It actually comes out later in a dance. It might or it it does come out later in a dance with dragons that Wyman Manderly is away on one of his. They call it an hour long squat, <laughs> yes. in in the uh, Theon chapter later on in, in the book. So keep keep a lookout for that because you know if Wyman is out for an hour 
at the at the privy or at the bathroom, um, then it's possible that he's conspiring or doing something There's nefarious. Other stuff happening. Yeah. So keep so keep your keep your eyes peeled. You know, readers, listeners, whatever it is. Jeff's making my own have very many layers, and I love it. Yes. All right. What's yours? I'm going to give mine to to Davos, and it's um, right after the North remembers speech. And for those of you guys who follow me on Twitter or, or have read some of my stuff, you guys know that I'm I'm a fan of Stannis uh, in, in the books, and I guess some of the show a little bit too. Um, but a big fan of Stannis in in the books, and um, you know Davos is is a king's man through and through. He believes in the cause of Stannis, and I think what he says. In response to the North remembers and the Mummers farce is done, my son is home. And then Davos thinks something about the way that Lord Wyman said that, or rather something about the way Lord Wyman said that chilled Davos to the bone. And then he says, if it is justice you want, my lord, look to King Stannis. No man is more just. And that to me just speaks uh, volumes about Stannis and what he means to Davos, to Mm -hmm. the the guy he raised up to a knight to a lord to the king's hand because ultimately against everything stannis is just and you know that's something that george george r, r. martin has confirmed off off page this isn't just an interpretation on davos's part you know george r, r. martin says that's above against everything stannis baratheon is a righteous man and just getting that line from davos was is, is a good line it's one that's not that's not often Remembered from this chapter because you have the North Remembers, you have the letter, you have you know the stuff about Davos going over over to Skagos, but no man is more just than Stannis, and that is my own for the Davos chapter. That's I really liked. I highlighted that as well because, and to have him say that after everything he's been through and the situation that he's in, to still kind of hold on to this zeal that he has, I think is is good. So that is good. That's a very good own. Great. So those are our owns. Um, and thank you to everybody who sent in their owns as well over on Twitter. We will read through them now. Our first own of the episode comes from at Clint wrote this on Twitter, who says, own to Lord Manderley for playing the Game of Thrones masterfully and tactily. And then quotes, I drink with Jared, jape with Sidmon, and never think that means I've forgotten. The North remembers Lord Davos, the North remembers, which is written in all caps, and the Murmur's farce is almost done. The North remembers should be in all caps. It really, always. Always. It's like when we say what is dead it may never die, and then everyone says it. Whenever anybody writes the North remembers, it should always be in all caps. Yes. I love it. Absolutely. Uh, and then we have uh, Brian. Brian. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm sorry. Maybe you need to make the letters bigger too. <laughs> Maybe I should. Yeah. Well, I, that's actually you know, long story short. I, I had read the audiobooks before I had actually read the books, and uh, the the narrator Regitrice, who who recently passed away, unfortunately, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, pronounced uh, Brienne's name as Brian yes. throughout the entire book. So, um, sorry to see him go, but I've also can sometimes slip and say Brian or Patire, uh, <laughs> different I things. I don't that, blame you. Yeah. Uh, so Brienne of Tarth, that's at Beauty Brienne, who's a buddy of mine, says, my own goes to, it's so hard to single out one thing in these chapters, but I guess I have to uh, give my own to Paya, the only person who has had their life arguably, imp- arguably improve over the course of these books. And to, of course, Wyman Manderley, the North remembers, should be in all caps, but it's not in the document. <laughs> and the Mumbers Forest is almost done. Uh, yeah, we didn't talk about Paya either. There's so many interesting side and minor characters that have cool little moments in this in this um this chapter too but yeah that's a good own yeah so thanks thanks for bringing up 
Apaya in your own so that we can give her a little shout out. Next, we have at Heathen King who says Davos owned to the speech, you know, the one, the speech. The North remembers Sir Davos and soon this member's farce is almost done. Popular own. Don't blame it. Jamie owned to that woman with the torn and scarred face, her eyes terrible to look upon. That hooded woman, dot, 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 disappeared into the neck, eh? It's another thing we didn't talk about. (laughs) (laughs) Can I mention it real briefly here? Please. So one of the phrase talks to is telling Jamie about the outlaws, and he mentions just offhand, quote, unquote, offhandedly, that the the Brotherhood Without Banners and um, the outlaws are disappearing into the neck. And uh, he thinks that um, the Kranich men are are hosting them or, or or hiding them or providing them shelter and food and stuff like that. So it gives rise to the potential that Lord Howland Reed, who we have not seen in the books yet and not seen in the show, is working in concert with Lady Stoneheart, knows who Lady Stoneheart is, and has a major role to play in the storyline in the Riverlands for the Brother Without Banners come the Feast for Crows, Dance of Dragons, the Winds of Winter. And so on, and um, yeah, it's it's a cool little throwaway line that that George integrates into the story that makes it uh, seem like that there's some sort of coordination going on between Howland Reed, who's one of the most mysterious characters in the books. He's the only survivor from the Tower of the Hand at this point, and uh, we'll have to see. It's so insane to think, as you say that, that we have not met Howland Reed yet, isn't it? Because I just think about the amount of time that is spent talking about him and reading about him and kind of all these different things the fact that we haven't actually met him yet is pretty insane to to remember so yeah stuff's a brewing yeah stuff is brewing i mean we have his well you you know his kids in uh in mira and joja (laughs) mira and joja mira and jojan (laughs) um but yeah we'll have to wait to see to to meet the meet helen reed in the books and george has said that we will eventually meet helen reed in the books so that's something to look forward to and not, not unfortunately in a Feast for Crows and a Dance of Dragons, but hopefully in the Winds of Winter or Dream of Spring. Fingers crossed. Hopefully Fingers sooner, crossed. sooner rather than later. And then the uh, final loan for the night is comes from Peter Jerko, which is at Kumaxmi. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I apologize if I'm not. Tweet at me if I'm not. <laughs> uh, he says, my own for Davos for asking, how did I die if I may ask? Hashtag sipping wine. Hashtag small, hashtag small tall questions. Hashtag polite even after death. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because Wyman says you would not I know like this, it. but you were dead. And then Davos says, "How? If I, how did I die? If I, if I may ask, it's a, it's a funny line." I mean, I would Davos have asked the same question. I think I would be curious. I'd be curious. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everybody who sent in their owns and for participating with us on social media. It makes what we get to do that much more fun. If you want to join in with us, if you want to send in your own owns, if you want to send in your own thoughts, feelings, etc. You can do that in a bunch of different ways. You can find us on Twitter at Game of Owns. Um, you can find us on Facebook by searching for Game of Owns, or you can send us an email to contact at gameofowns.com. And next time we're going to be reading, if you're not already following along, you can check out our reading order of feastwithdragons.com, which Jeff actually helped pull together. And we will be reading next Brienne six and Cersei seven, both from A Feast for Crows. So start reading, get ready to send in your owns and you can find (laughs) when that time comes, we'll tweet it out and put on Facebook. So that's what we've got next. Jeff, it has been so much fun to do this with you. Yeah, I'm so glad that you, I, it's like we always say, I always love it when we have you on the show 
and I'm glad we got to do our own little solo episode. It was really, isn't that it was cool? really fun. I think Zach is going to be super jealous, but I hope I'm, so. I miss my boy. So it's, uh... <laughs> um, how can people find you on social media? How can they not follow you on Twitter and where can they yeah. find other stuff that you do? If you're following me on Twitter, feel free to unfollow at Brendan B. Fish. <laughs> and um, I <sighs> spend a lot of time on Twitter, probably too much time according to my wife. And um, <laughs> I'm also on on Reddit as well as also Brendan B. Fish, where I am one of the moderators of the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit, which is reddit.com backslash or forward slash R forward slash and then A-S-O-I-A-F. So come out, come join us over there if you if you guys are not subscribers there and come join in the fun of the theor- of theorizing analysis, tinfoil, and all the cool stuff that the 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 larger the large Reddit community does in the Song of Ice and Fire uh, scene. But I think right now we're at over 400,000 subscribers. So wow. feel free to come by there and see what we're doing and yeah, come join the fun. That's awesome. Definitely. I encourage you, even if Reddit scares you, don't let the A Song of Ice and Fire Reddit scare you because it's a good place. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the time, yeah. Most of the time. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again. I'm sure we will have you on once again very soon, hopefully. Looking forward to it. And until then, hope everyone has a good day. <laughs>